Well, let us begin by reading our primary text. This will be 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 24. We can't forget when we read this now that this entire chapter and much of the book, John has been contrasting those who are born of God, those who are children of God, and those who are the evil one, children of the devil. This whole chapter has been you've either born of God, you are in his family, or you are a child of the devil. Now he asks us, to lay down our lives. Beginning in verse 16, it says, We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's good, goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know that by this we are of the truth and will assure our heart before Him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Amen. Well, I don't know about you personally, but I can say that I've never experienced genuine hunger. I've said before on occasion that our farm had some challenging times during the drought, droughts of the 80s, but I never missed a meal, never missed a bath. I always had something to eat. I always had clothes on our back. I really don't know what it's like to be hungry. I praise God for that. My wife Rita raised in Brazil, as you know, uh, Her dad died when she was two. Her mother had three children in that impoverished nation. She experienced severe hardship in her younger years, at least until her and her siblings were old enough to go out and work as teenagers. She's seen a lot of things that most of us have never experienced. But the majority of Americans, due to food banks, food stamps, school lunch programs, all kinds of government-supported assistance, We rarely experience prolonged hunger. I know there are exceptions to this. But due to the wealth of our nation, we haven't experienced widespread hunger since the Great Depression. Even when you watch television shows, you know, like Cops, and they're breaking into a poor neighborhood and going into that house that's dilapidated. The cameraman follows in the the police, and, and you see there on the flat screen television... Man, it's Bill O'Reilly. They've got cable TV. And they're cuffing the guy. And they're about to haul him out to the car. And his wife is there dialing up the bail bondsman on the iPhone 5. You know? Is that poverty? This is not true all the time, but when we consider the poor today... A lot of times they aren't using their unemployment check necessarily for what they need. Sometimes it's for what they want. And then they find other resources to get what they need, food and clothing. Because those are plentiful in America. Food and clothing are generally plentiful. So here's my point. Most of the time here in America, most of the time, not all the time, food isn't priority one for people. Priority one is getting what people want, and then they try to scrounge together some other way to get what they need. So when we observe poverty in the Bible to the level of which Paul the Apostle and John is writing to and all the apostles are writing about, we don't comprehend it. Most of us Americans do not understand what it is like living in a tent, 
no running water, no heat, no food available, no McDonald's dollar value meal. The most, most of us today, I pray, will never know what it's like to carry all of your belongings on your back. That is what many experienced back during biblical times. They would travel from place to place by foot. They didn't have a Motel 6 to check into. They had to get out of the weather somehow. So when the apostles are writing to this, we need to keep this in mind. You know, our biggest struggle when we're moving is what size U-Haul to rent, right? To carry all the junk that we don't need. But Scripture sets the benchmark for Christian satisfaction very low, very low. The Apostle Paul declared, If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. That's 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8. Food is absolutely basic for human survival. I think it's fair to biblically define covering as those things that keep a person out of the elements, a modest home, simple clothing, heat, access to fresh water. A Christian should be able to find contentment with these things. If someone desires more, you're free to work for them. You're free to work for them. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, this begins in verse 6. The Apostle Paul writes to correct Christians who were not working while they were abusing the benevolence of the church. Paul writes, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, Paul says, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, as apostles, but in order, Paul says, to offer ourselves as a model for you, so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. That's God's Word. Christians aren't freeloaders. And as you can see, the church is not commissioned to supply smartphones and and flat-screen TVs to everybody who asks. Church is not a socialist state. We are a compassionate safety net to, to provide basic human necessities, predominantly to other Christians. So for Christians who are not able to work, remember that text I just read said, those people who are not willing to work. Paul didn't say the people who aren't able to work. For Christians who are not able to work, our responsibility is to do what it is within our power to keep those Christian brethren nourished and secure. Because of America's great wealth, all that we have, our common response when reading these instructions here, just pass over them. You know, well, I don't know anybody who doesn't have basic food and clothing. Everybody here has clothing. I can see it right now. Nobody looks real hungry, so this passage doesn't apply to me. Right? We're not going to get off that easy today. I hate to bust your bubble. But when it comes to brethren, I'm going to amplify this passage is describing how we interact, how we care for Christian brethren. Look with me at 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. We know love by this, that He, that means Jesus, laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. In complete contrast to Cain, 
who in the previous passage that we studied murdered his brother, we find the Holy Christ. He laid down his life for who? The brethren. That is his body. It is the church. It's the Corpus Christi Latin. The body of Christ. Those who have placed their trust in him. Unbelievers are never considered in Scripture as Christ's brethren or our brethren. We have learned previously in the same letter that, that for everyone who does not believe in Christ, that they reside in darkness. It says their father is the devil. In fact, John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God abides on him. This describes your neighbors who you've not yet led to to Christ. The wrath of God abides on them. They're not in the family of God. They're not in Christ's church. They're not our brethren. Many never will be. Instead, Scripture describes them to us as neighbors. They're our mission field. But we don't know which ones are going to come to faith. We don't know which ones will, which ones won't. That's God's sovereign responsibility. Our responsibility is to witness to them. To be a kind witness. To testify to the truth concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul went around and did. He preached the gospel to the unbelievers. So we treat our neighbors with dignity. But this passage today does not apply to unbelieving neighbors who remain under the wrath of God. Text only applies to how we express our love towards the brethren. Christ laid down his life for us who have faith. Because of that, it's our obligation, according to the second half of verse 16. Read with me. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Our Christian duty is to imitate imitate Christ and act sacrificially towards other Christians. Verse 16 says, Our willingness to make this sacrifice is how we verify, first, that we know that we have the love of God. Verses 14 and 15, Loving the brethren is how we know we have eternal life. Read it. Verse 19 reveals how we know we are of the truth. It's by loving the brethren. We lay our lives down for them. This is very specific. It says, You have not loved the body of Christ if you do not love the brethren. It says the love of God doesn't abide in you if you don't love His church. If you don't love the body of Christ. We're not talking about a building here with the church. A building is never described as a church in Scripture. The church is the people of God. The assembly of God. So loving the people in Christ's church... Uh, John the Apostle says, is how we receive assurance that we are truly born of God. We love God's people. And our love for the brethren will be demonstrated, it says, in very tangible ways. Follow with me in verse 17. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So we've already learned this morning that that God indicates to us in Scripture that Christians are to be content with sufficient food and covering. We're to be content with that. That's a fairly low bar, isn't it? If you've been saved from your sins and are going to escape the wrath of God and hell for eternity, you're pretty happy with whatever God will give you. Food and covering, basic necessities. It's a low bar. And the rationale that that Paul gives concerning that being content in 1 Timothy, do you remember what it is? He says, because we brought nothing into the world and we can't take anything out of the world either. So you don't need more than food and covering to be content. You're not going to take anything with you according to his rationale. And we've also learned that if you work hard, if you want to work hard and, and buy a bigger house, that's up to you. But your increase in standard of living is not at the expense of the body of Christ. It is acquired by the sweat of your brow. You work hard. 
So returning to our main text in verse 17, and considering all we've discussed, what would be most reasonable to expect what the Apostle John means when he encourages sharing with other Christians the world's goods? What would that mean? Food and covering. Food and covering. Clean water, safe food, a warm home, clothes, other basic necessities. I believe in modern America, you could very well, without violating this passage, add to that uh, things that are practically required to remain in a safe home. Electricity, water and sewer, whatever it takes to maintain your occupancy. These would illustrate foundational acts of Christian benevolence. Extending that to the brethren. And sharing these, these needs that other Christians have, who can't get them themselves, that are not able to work, it shows your love for the brethren. You love them. And if you don't have a, a yearning desire uh, to provide these to other Christians, uh, other Christians who Christ died for, by the way, says the love of God doesn't abide in you. This could eat at your craw. But it also means, by clear implication, as a Christian, you shouldn't live in a reckless consumerism manner that will in any way interfere with your ability to meet the needs of others. By implication, this would mean you shouldn't just spend it all on yourself so you have nothing left over to give if God's commanding us to give. And you shouldn't live excessively on things you don't actually need. That's a different sermon for a different text and a different day. And you all need to define for yourself what excessive is. That's for you to decide between you and God. But it needs to be said, in order to keep things in perspective today, that, that pe- Christians are, are not people who are preoccupied with displaying themselves being ostentatious when that same money could be used to relieve the suffering of the brethren. In addition, John says that God is not satisfied with lip service. Verse 18, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. When a fellow Christian is in a destitute situation, Saying I care isn't enough. Words are cheap. That's the reason people love to talk. But the proof is in the pudding. If you truly love Jesus, you will love His church. And Christ's church consists of other living, breathing Christians with a heartbeat and a soul. You want a proof text for all of this? You all know this one, but I will give it to you. Keep your finger in 1 John. Turn over to your left to James. Just skip over Peter. Shouldn't be more than 10 pages in the typical Bible. James chapter 2. James chapter 2. This is in verse 14. James writes, What use is it, my brethren... Notice again, James uses the terms, brethren. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? The implied answer is a firm no. If a brother or sister, look, context of the church again. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food... And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so faith, if it has no works, is what? Dead. Dead. Imagine that. James aligns perfectly with the Apostle John. Perfectly. If your words are not authenticated by tangible benevolence demonstrated towards other Bible-believing Christians, you have no assurance of your salvation, if that's not a concern of yours. If you love the body of Christ as He loves it by laying down His life for it and dying for it, you know it. And you demonstrate that. You demonstrate it through true concern 
for wanting to nourish Christ's body. And when you follow through on those things, your heart, your conscience testifies to you. In verse 19 it says, We will know by this that we are of the truth. Of the truth means that we're genuine in what we do and what we say. And the truth will assure our heart before Him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Simply put, if you're a Spirit-indwelt Christian, the Holy Spirit is in your life. When you come before God in prayer, in meditation, you know. Your heart knows. You may try to suppress it because the heart is desperately wicked. But you know. Your heart, your spiritual conscience, it has enough insight to know whether you're actually following up your words with any deeds afterwards. It isn't rocket science. It's just good old-fashioned plain self-reflection. It's being honest with yourself. For instance, if you tell someone that you're going to pray for them, you pretty much know right away whether or not you're actually going to pray for them, don't you? You just say, I'll pray for you, and you just think to yourself in your head, I'm never going to get around to that. Just talk. That's why I encouraged, and, and, and we're, so, we're so distracted by life, that's why we encouraged back last summer, talking about prayer, to pray immediately. Someone has a need, someone has a concern, someone is ailing, pray right then on the spot, because you're going to forget it. You realize what you're going to do, what you're not, whether you're going to follow through on your words. Is your spirituality just words? James says that's no spirituality. Or is it deeds? I'm not going to delve a lot deeper into this section because we desperately need to transition to application. You guys already get this. I hope you do anyhow. If you don't, come to Pastor Weiler and I and talk. Um, this isn't rocket science. But the question of application is a difficult one. How does this work out? Our benevolence towards brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, how does it manifest itself? There are several ways demonstrated in the Bible. Uh, you and I likely utilize a combination. But we need to apply this. First and foremost... Benevolence begins with your family. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his own, that means his own family, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Nothing's more embarrassing than a quote-unquote Christian who won't provide for their own family. Especially if their family lacks provisions. And why is he or she worse than an unbeliever? Let's take, take a look around. Even most unbelievers will take care of their elderly mom or their elderly dad. Or that orphaned child that's in their family. Even unbelievers will do that. A Christian won't do that? The Bible says you basically denied your own faith. You're worse than an unbeliever. Because you're not practicing out what you speak. So imagine if I represent myself in a Christian community, as a, as a Christian or any community, which every Christian should, by the way, even if I go on to Facebook, let people know that I'm a Christian, and people start to notice that, that I'm driving a brand new Mercedes 560XL convertible. I don't even know if that exists. But it sounds expensive. And then I'm driving that, and I, they, they notice in my, in my profile or around town they see me and I got the new silk suit on, right? And I'm looking good. Those same people that see me on Facebook look at my mom in North Dakota and they find her when she gathers around at the kitchen table that she's dividing up saltine crackers. Or Rita's family in Brazil that knows we're in ministry and they, they see that we're driving new cars or big homes or going here and there, and they say, Rita's mom isn't eating. How embarrassing. 
they'd say, well, that guy, he's good for nothing. Doesn't even love his own family. How can, how can Christianity be real? Unbelievers don't even need to read the Bible. And they can figure that out. It brings disdain upon the name of Christ. It matters a lot. That's why it says that is priority number one. 1 Timothy 5.16 If a woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them and the church must not be burdened so that it, meaning the church organization, may assist those who are widows indeed. Even a woman is required to support widowed family members as long as they have no ability to care for themselves. You support your own dependent widows no matter who you are. Think about how Ruth, when we studied through Ruth, with her mother-in-law Naomi, who was too old to work in the fields, too old to be married, and Ruth got up early in the morning to go out to glean, right? And got the grain and took it back to her mother-in-law. There's a good illustration of how you would take care of dependent widows who have no other means of taking care of themselves. The point is that you just don't take those dependent family members if it's within your power to provide for them and and dump them on the church. Forgo the new car. Take care of your family. The early church had very strict guidelines on who would receive ongoing support from the church. Very strict guidelines. So a Christian's benevolent compassion begins with their family. Secondly, benevolence occurs on a personal level when you discover a legitimate need that you can meet. Especially food and shelter, right? Notice verse 17 again. If you see your Christian brother, they're lacking basic needs, and you have the world's goods, you have the ability to meet it. It says, do not close your heart against him. Again, as as we read earlier with Jesus in Matthew chapter 25 in our scripture reading, Jesus said, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison. Don't think of our modern prisons. It's probably talking about Christians who are imprisoned for their faith. Think of the Apostle Paul and other prisoners. Just saying that, remember, that there's different context to this. Jesus says, I was in prison, and you came to meet me. Jesus continues and says, The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Of course you did. It's Christ's body. If you're doing it to a brother or sister in Christ, by default, you are doing it to Christ's body. He said, you did it to me when you were doing it to them. Because I love them, I died for them, and they are part of me. Spiritually, we are one. But it also needs to be acknowledged. That personal benevolence extends to unbelievers. Not as prominent in scripture. Prominent is believers. Not as prominent is unbelievers. And the text that we're studying today in 1 John, as I said, and James 2 that we went to is not detailing that. Our passage prescribes behavior expressed towards Christians. But we do extend benevolence towards non-believers as we are ambassadors of Christ. They see the kindness of Christ. The love of God is demonstrated through our concern for them. This could be considered the, the Good Samaritan model, right? Someone's in desperate need. You come across them. You meet the need. Christians step in because we have mercy because God has had mercy on us. Very legitimate benevolence. We demonstrate a special concern for the orphan and the widow, regardless where they are spiritually. We demonstrate a special concern, I would say by implication, for those who are physically handicapped, those who are mentally troubled, meeting their need. Christians are people of compassion. But there are some caveats. First, the church itself... Uh, is never burdened by Scripture to meet every single desire of every unbeliever in a culture. We're not commissioned with that. iPhones, television, car payments. We get requests for all sorts of stuff. We really do here. 
Christ never designed the church to, to function in a way that would subsidize everybody's elevated standard of living. It, it can't function that way. There's no way you can meet all the needs. Even Christ himself did not meet every need. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, Jesus now had healed a whole bunch of people. He'd met a whole bunch of needs. He's in Galilee. People are clamoring to get to him. Who wouldn't? If you've got a need, he was the man to go to. And in verse 35 of Mark chapter 1, it says, In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. He left the house and went away to a secluded place and was there praying. Simon Peter and his companion searched for him. They found him and said to him, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. Of course they were. They're getting every need met. But Jesus said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. There were needs there to be met. Jesus said, I'm going to the town next door because I've got to preach. That's what I came for. He came to preach the kingdom at hand. This is one of the first lessons that the disciples learned. What we need to learn is that Jesus says, I didn't come to feed and clothe every single person on the planet. If he did, we've said it how many times, he miserably failed. If that was his goal. He came to provide redemption through the cross to sinners to be reconciled to him. So the first and foremost responsibility is to preach Christ crucified. We call people to repentance, to be saved from hell. Preaching the gospel is priority number one because nobody gets saved without it. You can meet every need in the world. If you don't tell them that there's a way to be saved from their sins, you've done nothing for them. Which leapfrogs to our next point. The church does not need to meet the unbeliever's physical need in order for them, for their heart to be open to a spiritual need. That is a fallacy. That, that is something that's been passed around. You do not find that in Scripture. The greatest evangelist we know of as Paul did not in any way suggest that during his ministry. First feed the people and then they'll be open to hear your words. Somehow God can unlock their hearts then once we've done something. That's weak theology. In actuality, I'm sorry, but that maligns the power of the Holy Spirit. God actually asked us to be witnesses and to proclaim the gospel. And upon that gospel, hearts will be opened contrary to what their physical situation is. Suggesting the Holy Spirit needs, to, needs you to prime the pump somehow before the Holy Spirit can do His powerful divine work belittles Him. It's actually an insult. What God has done is designated to us the responsibility to proclaim the gospel. That's our responsibility. God does the rest spiritually. Paul proclaimed the gospel and hearts were changed through the message of the cross. He didn't go out and buy votes. He didn't lobby for Christ. He prayed that the Holy Spirit would open doors for the message to be proclaimed so that people would be saved. He didn't go around with, with a whole bunch of organized benevolence to get people warmed up to the gospel. Prayer and courage to proclaim is the reason that Paul was so successful in ministry, not because of organized benevolence to unbelievers. You do not see that in Scripture. He never did that. And the reason that, that the liberal churches today will spend all of their time, all of their time, all of their energy, all of their resources quilting blankets and stuffing gift baskets is because they don't have the courage to go out and proclaim the gospel so someone can actually be saved. Going to someone and telling them they're a sinner and they need to be saved from their sins and come into the body of Christ to be reconciled to God, that takes a little bit of guts. A lot of churches are just ashamed of the gospel. They're ashamed of what the Word of God says about the gospel, about sin, about hell about where people are actually going if they don't repent, because they don't believe the Word and they're ashamed of that bloody cross. 
Let's not talk about that sin. But I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God unto salvation to all who will believe. To the Jew first and even to the Greek. That is the power of salvation. Enough on that. Evangelism really isn't the topic of our passage today. Benevolence is. This will be a tough one. Finally, benevolence is organized corporately. Of course, we know that our members would expect us at church here to meet reasonable needs as an organization when they, someone comes to our door and asks. And we strive to do that. That is a completely biblical model. The early Christians offered their resources to the church, if you remember, and they trusted the church leadership to be able to fill the needs when they arrived. Acts 4.34 says, For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they, the apostles, would, uh, then they uh, would be distributed to each as they had need. So Christian giving to their local church remains a model we see today. Most of us partake in that in some manner. And, and that money, when it comes in, it's used to support missionaries, to pay for our facility, air conditioning, which we all like. We need a place to meet. This building is a blessing from God. Praise the Lord for it. It's, it's not, you know, it's not something extra. We, we need a place to congregate and preach the gospel. Uh, salaries, maintenance, and benevolent giving. I'm not exactly sure the percentage, but benevolent giving, it's a tiny portion of our budget. One reason for that is that most Americans, most have private resources to cover those basics of food and shelter. Uh, second reason is there's ample resources. Uh, Salvation Army won't pick up locally here, here anymore, so uh, we give to the Salvation Army monthly to buy food. They won't come around in the truck and pick it up anymore. That's why we don't collect food here at this time. Um, most Americans have this stuff. They can find the Salvation Army. There are other food banks. There are government resources that can be had. So we don't have very many Christians or, or even non-Christians who knock on our door looking for food. Not very many. A few. Once in a while. And, and we meet that need. Usually they're asking for something else. New set of tires for their car. That, that's the type of thing we, we, we will run into. No, that's not why the church is here. That's not basic food and covering. We can never put new tires on everybody's car. You can do that as an individual if you have someone you know that needs it. You can do that. You can witness to the gospel and give that to people, but that's not why the church is here. That's a need that you would run into personally on your conscience, whether God is calling you to meet that. We can't screen every need here. But because of the wealth of America, food and covering, that, that's a minuscule portion of our benevolence, uh, of our organizational budget. And, and when we do meet a need for people to walk in off the street, you know, they always assure me, assure Gerald as well, thank you, we're going to be there Sunday for sure. We never see him, do we, Gerald? It's not a truth church growth model we do it to be merciful people don't come in from that type of giving to the church they get their need and they moved on and forgotten that's fine we shared the gospel we were polite we were a good witness to christ but this is why scripture doesn't provide benevolence as a great church church growth model it's something we do out of compassion Preaching the gospel is our church growth model. Instead, the Bible always places meeting the needs of the brethren as the highest priority. Hang with me here. 
And what happens when we find that churches are wealthy in a culture that is wealthy and the brethren in general aren't suffering, they've got their food and covering, by default, the missionary budget increases a whole bunch and the benevolence giving goes way down. Very disproportionate. We throw it all into somewhere that's not benevolent and very little gets allocated towards Christian brethren. But that is not what I observe in Scripture. And this is something that American churches seem to completely ignore. I do not hear it preached. I have never read a book on it, though it may exist. Let me know if you know of it. But Christian benevolence is so prominent in Scripture because Jesus Christ loves His church so much. And He doesn't want to see them suffer. But we ignore them. You're like, how do we ignore them? Hang with me. If you want to see what I observe in Scripture, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16, please. I want you to see this before we go home. Corinth was a wealthy church compared to the others in a wealthy culture. Not a lot different than a first world country today. We've got enough, right? So Corinth had resources, as did many of the churches, as you'll see. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so do you also. So this is multiple churches Paul is instructing on this. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and save, as he may prosper, means according to how much God blesses you by, so that no collections be made when I come. So this collection isn't an isolated one-time occurrence. It's standard practice as Paul is instructing the churches to do it on a weekly basis. I.e., that means it's a systematic portion of their budget. Then Paul continues, When I arrive, whomever you may approve, he's talking to Corinth now, whoever you choose, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem, several countries away. And if it is fitting for me to go also, Paul says, if my schedule is available, they will go with me too. We'll all go and carry it to the church that's in need. So what was up with Jerusalem? Does anybody remember? They had had a lot of their property confiscated. Many of them had been dispersed out of the area. And the ones who remained were poor, impoverished, didn't have their land, their resources anymore. They didn't have much. In in Romans chapter 15, verse 26, Paul informs the Roman church, the church in Rome, for Macedonia and Achaia, notice a couple more regions come into the picture that Paul got on board here. They have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. There's poor. And it pleased them to provide the relief to these poorer Christians in another location. I imagine so, especially in Jerusalem. That's where the gospel originated. Wouldn't you want to bless that church? And listen to this exhortation from 2 Corinthians now, chapter 9. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, Paul writes, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, He scattered abroad. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, that is God, he will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increased your own harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service, that service is benevolence, the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God because of the proof given by this ministry. They 
meaning Jerusalem, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. Well, they also, by prayer on your behalf, I mean, there's going to be a return here, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing of grace of God in you. And Paul sums it up saying, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Is that wonderful? Paul says, you will give to the poor church in Jerusalem and others, he says, and they in turn will offer intercessory prayer for you and praise God for it. Here's one more location again from 2 Corinthians, this time in chapter 8. For this is not for the ease of others. It means it's not to make life easy for them. And for your affliction, he says, not to make things hard on you, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, and get this, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need. That there may be equality. As it is written, He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. Listen to what David Lowry, he's a longtime professor of New Testament studies and Greek scholar at Dallas Seminary, he writes this concerning this passage. A guiding principle for material exchange among churches is equality. Paul was not wanting some church to have relief while the Corinthians were were hard-pressed and afflicted. That would be like robbing Peter to pay Paul. No, Paul no doubt approved of the Jerusalem church's early efforts in meeting each other's needs, that means sharing property, by having everything in common, he writes. They expressed their mutual concern for all the members of the body of Christ. This principle was modeled after a divine pattern, he writes. When God gave food to the Israelites in the wilderness, he did so equally according to their need. The church should do no less. Unquote. Is this not exactly what the Apostle John is saying in laying down your lives for the brethren? Is it not what James told us to do concerning a brother and sister in Christ who is in need? And is it not exactly what the Apostles are encouraging in the behavior of the churches that are underneath their instruction. It is. It is. I expressed my concern a couple of weeks ago to the board and Gerald about this passage. I didn't know exactly how we ad- adequately meet the needs of poor Christians on any ongoing basis. I didn't know how, how I was even going to preach this leading up to today. There it is. Simply ask that we question how we respond to destitute churches that Christ gave his life for across the globe. What would Christ have us do? What's stopping us from ministering in a broad way? It's a couple things as we pray about this, as we look at this, um, one thing we need to do, we need to retire our debt. We need to make that go away. We're blessed with this facility. We're blessed to get it back up in order. But our debt runs, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's in in excess of $50,000 a year, our payments. We need to put that away so we have more to meet tangible needs. We're thankful for our building. We need a building. We need to make that go away. Imagine what we could do with that if we don't get silly. Think of what God might add to our work here in souls, in evangelism, in outreach, in people if we were to show compassion on Christians who are struggling elsewhere, those people that Christ died for. What might Christ do? We act without empty words, but with tangible deeds. It's a discussion we need to have.
discussion we need to have. I know there's nothing to fear. In closing, our passage in 1 John chapter 3 assures us this. He goes, whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Because we keep His commandments and we do those things that are pleasing to Him. We do the things that are pleasing to Him. What's pleasing to Him here? In this, in this context, what He's saying is pleasing. Share, right? With other Christians, especially those in need. Not exclusively, but especially. That'd be pleasing. And he says, whatever we ask, we receive from him. So we don't have to worry at all about running out of our own money, right? Well, I, I might give too much. I might outgive God. You could be foolish, but you aren't going to outgive God. He, he promises this. If you're doing what's pleasing in his sight, he's going to replenish. Nothing to fear. This whole passage along with verse 23, it suggests we demonstrate our love towards other Christians in tangible deeds just as he commanded us. In verse 24, we, we know that by this, uh, he abides in us by his spirit. He indwells us. And that's the same spirit that he's given to every Christian everywhere around the world who's laid their, laid their faith in Christ, trusted in him. He loves every single one of them. And we love him too, near and far. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful first for the mercy that you've shown us, the compassion and riches that you've displayed towards us in Christ, that we were but beggars with nowhere to turn and you showered us with your abundant grace through your Holy Spirit, Lord God, and you changed our hearts. Lord, we pray that you'll now guide us into all truth, that we'll live lives that are, that are pleasing to you, Lord, first and foremost for your glory, that you'd be praised for it, Lord God, and that we'd, we'd look forward to that day when we see you in just, just a few short years or a couple decades, maybe 50 short years, and we see you, face to face to enter into eternity, Lord. And you say, well done. Lord, help us. We're weak. Our flesh is strong. It tries to overpower us, Lord, every single one of us. Help us be rich towards others. Help us to give. Help us to love well. Thank you for this wonderful life that you've given us, Lord. Help us to imitate the Holy One. It's in his holy, righteous name that we pray. Amen.